Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 9 and then there was one. Thanks for listening. Last week we covered the second half of Sviatoslav's reign and saw how he accepted a Byzantine deal to invade Danubian Bulgaria that he probably should have refused. The invasion started well but then faltered as Sviatoslav had to rush back to Kiev to rescue the city from a Pechenik siege. Undeterred though, he went back to Bulgaria, but this time he pushed too far south and threatened the empire. So the new man in charge, John Redboots Simiskis, raised an army, forced the Rus to retreat and then sent them packing. And on the way back to Kiev, Sviatoslav was ambushed and killed by the Pechenegs. And whilst this was a disaster for Sviatoslav, personally, dynastically, all was not lost. So in the first part of this episode, we'll look at how the three sons of Sviatoslav avenged their father, defeating the Pechenig Khan, and then ruled harmoniously together, ushering in a golden age for Kievan Rus. Except we won, because sadly, none of that happened. The actual story is one of a bitter fraternal rivalry, and within eight years, two of the brothers would be dead. And then in the second half of the episode, we'll look at how the remaining sibling became one of the most notable grand princes of Kievan Rus. But before we start, I've got a couple of important points. The first is a reminder that we're still at the mercy of Nestor's primary chronicle, which, if you remember, was put together in the early 12th century well over 100 years after the events I'll be covering today. So I'll need you to bear that in mind, particularly when the detail on a particular period is sparse and lacking in detail, like it is for a lot of the period covered by this episode. And then secondly, just a quick reminder that the podcast website is historyofrussia.podbean.com. There you can find some usual visual aids, such as maps and timelines, to accompany the podcast. 
And if you want to get in touch, then you can in a number of different ways, via the website, via Twitter, which is at HistoryRussia1, or this good old-fashioned email, nordicworld at outlook.com. Or you could follow me or subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening on. Okay, that's the intro and the marketing done, so two ticks for me. Let's get stuck into the history. And first off, let's reacquaint ourselves with the three surviving sons of Sviatoslav. And it's worth noting here that this is the first time that the Rurikid dynasty has had to contend with multiple heirs. Rurik and Igor both had one surviving son, and Oleg none, or none that we know of, although I doubt whether for all three of them any of that was actually true. Their sons and daughters that were born to them weren't in all cases recorded. Anyway, back to the children of Sviatoslav. So the eldest is Yarapolk, and in the middle there's Oleg, and they're full brothers. And then bringing up the rear is a younger half-brother named Vladimir. And he's at a bit of a disadvantage in the dynastic stakes, as Sviatoslav was never married to his mother, a woman called Matusha. Now, if we accept the primary chronicles version of when they were born, and to be honest, we don't have a lot of choice, in 972, Yarapok is 20, Oleg is 15, and Vladimir 14. And so it's Yarapok who became the next man in charge, mainly because, well, that's the normal way of things in most hereditary monarchical regimes, and also, I guess, because of his age and maybe his character. So let's find out what he gets up to. And unfortunately, as I've mentioned, we've got very little to go on, certainly from our main sources anyway. The primary chronicle tells us that Sviatoslav had given Kiev to his eldest son. Remember that this was part of his distribution of Rus territories that happened when he headed off to invade Bulgaria for the second time in 969. And just for the record, Oleg was given the Drevlian lands and Vladimir got Novgorod. European sources, some of them contemporary and some from later centuries, report that Yarapolk sent envoys to the Holy Roman Emperor in Eastern 973 and possibly also to the papal court. And then we're told that a certain St. Bruno of Kerfurt was sent to the Rus lands and that he succeeded in converting a local king, one of three brothers who ruled the land, to Christianity. So this was likely to have been Yarapolk, as yet another source points to the fact that he went through a preliminary type of baptism. But how true this is, we don't know. Then at some point in the mid-970s, we get a strong sense that all is not well with the Rus, as a simmering rivalry between the three brothers, but initially just Yarapolk and Oleg, breaks out into a full-on civil war. According to one chronicle, in either 976 or 977, Yarapolk's brother Oleg killed a certain Liut, who was the son of Yarapolk's chief advisor and military commander, Sveneld. Now we met a Sveneld last week and I'm not sure if this is the same Sveneld who tried to advise Sviatoslav to avoid the Dnieper or Dnieper raids just before the Petenigs caught up with him. But whoever he was, he demanded that something be done about his son's murder. And so, believing that revenge is a dish best served red hot, Yarapolk went to war against his brother Oleg 
and killed him. And then why stop there? Why not get rid of any semblance of fraternal interference and just clear the decks? So somewhat inevitably, Yarapolk's next move is to send a group of his men up to Novgorod to get rid of baby brother Vladimir. But they were just too late because somehow Vladimir got to hear about Oleg's murder and putting two and two together, he made a run for it and escaped. But I guess Yarapolk isn't too bothered. Oleg is dead, Vladimir is off the scene, and now we can get on and enjoy the trappings of being the sole man in charge. And whilst he's off doing that, let's turn our attention to Vladimir and try and find out exactly where he has disappeared to. The Chronicles tell us that in 977, Vladimir fled to his, and I'm doing inverted commas here, kinsman, Harkon Sigurdsson, the ruler of Norway. Now Harkon the Powerful, or Harkon the Bad, as he was known, had taken over in Norway by conspiring with Harald Bluetooth, the king of Denmark, to have the then ruler of Norway, Harald Greycloak, these names are just fantastic, murdered at some point in the early 970s. So Harkon is now the man in Norway, and the 19-year-old Vladimir persuades him to provide a small army so that he can cross back over to Rus territory and retake Novgorod. Now why Harald does this is not explained, and even if he is Vladimir's kinsman, whatever that means in this instance, you have to wonder what was in it for him. Anyway, with his army now intact, in 978 or 980 according to some of the sources, Vladimir headed back to Rus territory, retook Novgorod, and then started on the long march down to Kiev. And we're told that he then takes two rather important towns on the way, Polotsk, where he kidnaps and marries a woman called Rogneda, who was, at the time, actually betrothed to Yaropolk, so take that brother, and then Smolensk. And then finally he arrives in Kiev, takes the city, murders Yaropolk, and is proclaimed Grand Prince of Kiev. Impressive stuff. And I'm sure that Sviatoslav himself would have approved. And he would have certainly approved of his son's next moves, because Vladimir undertook a splurge of territorial expansion, taking several towns from the Poles to his west in 981, subduing and or conquering a number of Slavic and Baltic tribes between 982 and 984, and undertaking a military campaign against the Volga Bulgars in the east in 985, establishing numerous fortresses and Rus colonies along the way. And just a quick point here, there's no mention of the Norwegians taking part in any of this activity. And so my assumption is that they were either packed off back to Harald with full wallets, or they were integrated into the main Rus army. Whatever the case, it's highly likely that they then slipped off to Constantinople, I nearly said Constantinople again, Constantinople a couple of years later and joined the newly constituted Varangian Guard, which was the empire's elite fighting force. And in parallel with all of this military exertion, Vladimir also found time to concentrate on religious matters. Now, since August time, Christianity had been slowly growing amongst the Rus. Nevertheless, it was still viewed as a fringe religion, particularly among the Kievan nobility, 
and Vladimir, like his father, was a fully paid-up pagan. So much so that the primary chronicle states that he had numerous wives and over 800 concubines. Yes, 800. The chronicle also notes that he built a pagan temple on a hill in Kiev, dedicated to six gods. He had Perun, who was the god of thunder and war, and who was a Norse god favoured by members of the prince's drujina, or retinue. The Slav gods Strybog and Dajdbog. Mokosh, a goddess representing Mother Nature, worshipped by the Finnish tribes. And Kroz and Simago, who were both of Iranian origin. And it would appear that Vladimir is using this select pantheon to appeal to as many of the disparate peoples living under Rus' hegemony as he can. Almost inevitably, though, this state-sponsored and nationalistic pagan hybrid leads to persecution of the Christians, and many of them either concealed their beliefs or thought it better to move out of Kiev altogether. But not all of them. Some remained and were caught up in periodic bouts of mob violence, injured and even killed, with two people, Fyodor and Ion, going on to become the first Rus Christian martyrs. And something in all of this must have caused Vladimir to reflect, because Nestor tells us that soon after these incidents, in either 986 or 987, he sent learned men and envoys to study the religions of neighbouring nations and see whether their beliefs had any advantages to offer. And remember, a while back, the Khazars were supposed to have done a similar kind of thing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When the envoys return, we get the following appraisals. Of the Muslim Bulgarians of the Volga, they reported, there is no gladness among them, but only sorrow. And they also stated that Islam was undesirable due to its taboo against alcoholic beverages and pork. And when Vladimir heard this, he is supposed to have remarked, Drinking is the joy of all the Rus. We cannot exist without that pleasure. Judaism was also given short shrift, as the general consensus was that the Jews' loss of Jerusalem was evidence that they had been abandoned by God. And similarly, Latin Christianity was rejected as the envoys saw no beauty in the Western churches. However, when the envoys visited Constantinople, the full festival ritual of the Byzantine church was set in motion to impress them. 
We no longer knew whether we were in heaven or on earth, they gushed, describing a majestic divine liturgy in the Hagia Sophia. Nor such beauty, and we know not how to tell of it. And of course, Vladimir was suitably impressed. But perhaps what happened next is the real reason that Eastern Orthodox Christianity was chosen as the state religion of the Kievan Rus. In 988, we find Vladimir in the Crimean Peninsula, doing a bit more territorial expansion, and having taken the town of Cherson from the Byzantines, he boldly negotiated for the hand of the Emperor Basil II's sister, Anna Porphyrogenita. And again, a bit of background here. Basil II was one of the child emperors that I mentioned in last week's episode, that had been pushed to one side by Nicephorus Phocas and John Redboots. But now he's the main man, and he'll continue to be the main man for many years, and will go on to earn the sobriquet or nickname, the Bulgar Slayer. Having said that, for the time being, he's got a few problems on the home front, and he's having trouble asserting his authority. Anyway, leaving Basil's woes to one side just for a second, it's worth pointing out that never before had a Byzantine imperial princess, and certainly not one born in the purple, married a barbarian. But we're told that to seal the deal, Vladimir was baptised at Cherson and took the Christian name of Basil as a compliment to his new imperial brother-in-law. And this sacrament was followed by his wedding to Anna and returning to Kiev in triumph, he destroyed the pagan monuments and established many churches, starting with a church dedicated to St. Basil and the Church of the Tithes in 989. However, and it's a big however, Arab sources tell a different story. They report that in 987, two Byzantine nobles, Bardas Sclerus and Bardas Phocas, revolted against Basil II, with Phocas even proclaiming himself as emperor in the September of that year. So Basil needed help, and he needed it like right now, and so he turned to the Kievan Rus for assistance, even though they were technically enemies at the time. Vladimir pondered, but eventually agreed. But in return, he had two conditions. Well, it's sort of one, really, with two sort of aspects to it. Number one, he agreed to accept Orthodox Christianity as his religion and to Christianise his people because he wants to marry Anna, and with this he'll get a seat at the top table using the kudos that his high-profile marriage brings. Basil had no choice, really. He hastily agreed. Anna, no doubt, had no say in the matter. And when the wedding arrangements were settled, Vladimir dispatched 6,000 troops down to Constantinople and they assisted Basil in putting down the revolt. And I definitely think it's the second version of events that holds true here. I just can't see Basil agreeing to marry off his sister just because he's lost a settlement on the the Crimea. We know the way the Byzantines work. They're dyed-in-the-wool diplomats and skilled negotiators. And in this case, there would have to be a quid pro quo. Basil gets help in putting down a revolt. Vladimir gets to marry a Byzantine princess and move into the big leagues. And I'm pretty sure that his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy and baptism is less to do with the which religion shall I follow lottery favoured by the primary chronicle and much more aligned with hard-nosed realpolitik. 
Anyway, whichever version of events holds true, Vladimir is now married to a Byzantine princess and has linked the Kievan Rus and their Russian, Ukrainian and Belarusian descendants forever with the world of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Well, most of the descendants for most of the time. The primary chronicle then tells us that he formed a great council involving his nobles or boyars, and that's the first time we've heard it's either boyars or boyars, and put each of his 12 sons, and more of them a bit later, in charge of his subject principalities. In 991, he founded the city of Belgorod, and in 992, he went on a campaign against the white Croats that lived on the border of modern Ukraine. However, this campaign was interrupted by occasional raids and attacks by, guess who? Yeah, you're right, the Pechenegs on Kiev and the surrounding area which Vladimir and his sons had to put down intermittently. In his later years, he lived in relative peace with his other neighbours, mainly Boleslav I of Poland, Stephen I of Hungary, and of course, Basil Down in Constantinople. Now, unfortunately, in 1011, Anna died. But even at the relatively old age of 53, where it was for that time, Vladimir wasn't going to settle for the quiet widower's life, and presumably by this time the 800 concubines had been sent packing, and so he married a granddaughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto the Great. And then in late 1014, Vladimir had a run-in with his son Sviatopolk, which I'm actually going to cover in more detail next week. And then one of his other sons, Yaroslav, stopped forwarding tribute to Kiev. So Vladimir decided he'd got to act against his insolence and began gathering his army. However, before he could lead his troops into battle, Vladimir fell seriously ill, and he died in 915 at a place called Berestova, near modern-day Kiev. And so the great man is no more, but before I review his life and times and look upon his impact on the Rus, I just want to take a quick glimpse at his many wives and offspring because A, well there are just so many of them, around a dozen sons and six daughters, and which in terms of the Rus rulers up to this point is certainly the exception, and B, quite a few of them will appear in next week's episode and so it's probably a good idea to introduce them now. So Vladimir is first married to a woman called Olava or Alogia and he has one son, Vyacheslav. And from what I can see, we never hear of him again. Then there is a Greek nun, um, no name, who had actually been married to Yaropolk, Vladimir's brother. Now, a son was born to this Greek nun called Sviatopolk, uh, who I've just mentioned actually. And Sviatopolk could have been Vladimir's son, he could have been Yaropolk's son, and we just don't know. Wife number three is Rogneda. This is the woman that he kidnapped on his march to Kiev. And with Rogneda, he has another four sons. Now, you know, my pronunciation on this episode has not been that great, and I don't think it's going to get any better. So we have Isaiaslav, Yaroslav, Zephalod, <laughs> and Mstislav. Uh, maybe, there were maybe two Mstislavs. And then we have three daughters, Predslava, Premislava, and Mstislava. 
Wife number four is a Bulgarian woman called Adela, and another four sons come along. Boris, Gleb, Stanislav, and Sudislav, and we'll certainly hear more of Boris and Gleb. Wife number five is a woman called Malfrida, and one more son, Sviatoslav, is born. Then we've got Anna Porfirogenita, uh, and they have a daughter called Theophana. And some sources think that Boris and Gleb, who I've just mentioned, are Anna's sons. But like I say, um, most think that they actually were born to the Bulgarian woman Adela. Then with the granddaughter of Otto the Great, there's Maria. And finally, a couple of others who the sources don't really know who their mother was, and that's a daughter called Vladimirovna and a son called Hoshvist. Okay, let's have a look at the significance, uh, Vladimir's significance and legacy. He's gone down in history as Vladimir the Great, and as far as I can tell, that seems to be mainly due to the wholesale conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. And the reality is that during Vladimir's reign, the Varangian stroke Rus period of Eastern Slavic history ends, and the Christian period begins. When we talk of the conversion, it doesn't just seem to have been for political or geopolitical reasons either, as during the Christian part of his rule, he seems to have become genuinely pious. We're told that he lived the teachings of the Bible through acts of charity, would hand out food and drink to the less fortunate, and made an effort to go out to the people who could not easily access him. He founded numerous churches, established schools, protected the poor, and introduced ecclesiastical courts. And the memory of Vladimir has also been kept alive by innumerable Russian folk ballads and legends, which refer to him as Krasno Sonishko, either the Fair Sun or the Red Sun. And he's also generally revered in Ukraine and Belarusia. Various cathedrals and monuments are either dedicated to him or named after him, as is the town of Volodymyr Volyniski in northwestern Ukraine, and perhaps also the city of Vladimir in Russia, although that could have been founded by a later Vladimir. The jury's still out on that one. But along with this Christianity and bricks and mortar, there's so much more to weigh up about his life. I mean, when you look at it, he seized power from what looked like a hopeless position, successfully continued his father's expansion policy, rallied everyone, well, apart from the Christians at the time, around his combined model of paganism, took Kievan Rus onto the big stage with his marriage to Anna, and was then viewed as an equal among the various neighbouring states, divided his territory up amongst his sons, giving them real responsibility and preparing them for the future. And one last point, which I think is a good indicator in these violent times. He died in his bed, unlike his father and grandfather. So based on all of that, I think the title of Vladimir the Great is well justified. OK, we're going to leave it there for this week. Join me next week when we'll take a bit of a recap. We're going to look at how Kievan Rus has developed over its first 150 years in terms of governance, culture, outlook and also how it was viewed by its friends and enemies. And then we'll look at two of Vladimir's sons, Sviatopolk and Yaroslav, see how they develop this legacy, and a bit of a spoiler alert, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So until then, stay safe, 
look after yourself and I'll see you all soon.